0: Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. With Oklahoma lawmakers set to convene November 15th for a redistricting special session, Keaton's been investigating how the counting of the incarcerated affects state, local, and national politics. Keaton, what is prison gerrymandering, and why is it an issue?
1: Sure. So, uh, since at least the mid-1800s, the Census Bureau has counted incarcerated people as residents of the place um, where they're imprisoned. Um, and for most of that time, it was inconsequential. There weren't many people locked up. Um, but as we've seen, incarceration rates rise. Um, this practice has given a boost to to prison towns and, and places with prisons, uh, which are mostly in rural areas. Um, and generally, it increases the representation in those areas because of the incarcerated people. Um, the greatest impact is on... Um, our state house and and Senate districts, uh, you know, obviously less constituents than like a congressional district. Um, so, you know, with the less people, the more impact a prison, you know, with a thousand or 2000 people, um, will have.
0: Got it. So in, in simple terms, you might have a, a county or a district with 10,000 people in it that also has a prison with 2000 inmates, they get a 20% population bump. Yeah, exactly. I got it. Okay. Why? Why do uh, a lot of criminal justice researchers think we should change how we count prisoners? Why is it problematic?
1: Sure. For for a couple of different reasons. One, uh, most prisoners aren't staying incarcerated for that long. Um, Bureau of Justice Statistics um, from 2018 uh, show that the average prison stay is about two point seven years. And two thirds of people are released from prison um, after serving two years or less. Um, so these are short prison stays. They aren't. Most people aren't staying for decades. Um, and so I've talked to some folks who compare, say, we should be counting prisoners like we count um, a kid who goes off to boarding school. Uh, you know, temporary stay. We expect them to come back. Um, and another uh, issue with this, um, with you know racial disparities in our criminal justice system, um, this practice generally affects minority communities significantly more. Um, you know, in Oklahoma, our, our incarceration rate among blacks is four times the rate of our state population. Um, so there are some, some big disparities there.
0: What, what are other states doing?
1: Yeah, so other states have started um, going away from what the Census Bureau is doing and counting um, incarcerated people at their last known address. Um, To do that, the major hurdle is just getting that information, um, surveying people in prison and, and, you know, just asking them where they last live and and getting all that data together. Once they get that data, they can send it to the Census Bureau um, and they'll help them draw alternative maps for the purpose of redistricting. Um, Doesn't have an impact on uh, state or federal funding for prison communities or anything like that.
0: It, is it going to be possible to change that system in Oklahoma? Sure.
1: So it, it would be possible um, if the state was able to get that data and obviously get it through the legislature. Um, so far, 12 states have uh, changed how they count incarcerated people in redistricting, um, counting them at their last known address. Um, most of those states are in the Northeast and on the West Coast, um, have Democratic governors and, and Democratic Uh, state legislatures. Um, So the big question is, would a red state like Oklahoma be willing to take this up? Um, We've seen so far, Montana is in the process of trying to end this and they're a red state. So possibly some hope there.
0: Well, we do have a redistricting special session coming up next month. Is there any chance that it'll be addressed during that?
1: Yeah. So likely not. Um, Obviously, it's a big hurdle trying to get the data and get that integrated. And um, so th- this session, um, unlikely, we'd likely be looking forward to 2030. Um, but one uh, possible solution or remedy to, to try to uh, lessen the impact of this would be to make sure, you know, we're not putting three or four prisons with a combined population of four or 5,000 together in a house district with 38,000 people.
0: Got right. it. Well, thanks, Keaton. Listeners can read all of Keaton's criminal justice coverage at OklahomaWatch.org. Paul Money's covers Oklahoma government. This week, the governor criticized a decision uh, that had to do with Oklahomans and their birth certificates. Paul, Dr. Lance Fry has led the state's pandemic response since May of 2020, what's behind his sudden resignation Friday afternoon
2: well we asked the governor's office uh, whether Fry was asked to resign or resign voluntarily but um, they declined to the comment uh, and of course in his resignation letter Fry said it was just a time for the time for him to move on as the state comes off the latest spike related to the Delta variant of the coronavirus I mean to that point hospitalizations and cases are both down compared to the recent peaks in July and August. Still, the timing was odd because Fry's resignation came just a-, a day after Governor Stitt harshly criticized certain unnamed rogue employees at the health department for settling a federal lawsuit. The legal settlement would allow non-binary people to amend their birth certificates to allow that designation instead of male or female. Now important point to remember is that the health commissioner is a direct appointment of the governor. So for Governor Stitt to come out and harshly rebuke an agency where he has direct control was definitely out of the ordinary. And keep in mind too, that the attorney general represents most state agencies in court, and this settlement was reached back in late spring on advice of former attorney general, Mike Hunter, who left office in May. But in the end, as a top person at the health department, Fry would have to have sign off on any settlement.
0: So, so why were governor Stead and some other, uh, high ranking legislative leaders so upset with the health department's settlement, uh, regarding the birth certificates?
2: Well, given the speed at which both the House Speaker Charles McCall and the Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat issued statements uh, blasting the settlement, it appears that Republican legislative leaders were probably blindsided by the decision. Uh, Both Treat and McCall said such a policy change for birth certificates should be left up to the legislature, not done through a court settlement. McCall, meanwhile, said that any major legal settlements by state agencies should be reviewed by the Speaker, the Pro Tem, and the Governor before being approved. Now, all of this comes as Oklahoma has one of the country's first non-binary lawmakers with Representative Marie Turner, a Democrat from Oklahoma City. They took issue with the remarks of the GOP lawmakers and the governor saying on Twitter that they were saddened to see such misguided and dangerous rhetoric about non-binary people.
0: How, um, how is the health department involved with birth certificates in the first place?
2: So like many states, Oklahoma's records for births and deaths are maintained by the state health department. Uh, The state also has an official registrar who is in charge of vital records division at the agency. Now this lawsuit involved a person who was born in Oklahoma but who now lives in Oregon. Uh, They first got approval from an Oregon judge to change their status to non-binary. Then they asked the Oklahoma State Department of Health to amend their Oklahoma birth certificate to allow non-binary gender designation. The state's registrar refused saying that Oklahoma didn't allow that option. And so the Oregon resident then sued in federal court leading to the current settlement. Now currently 17 states and the district of Columbia recognize a non-binary gender status on birth certificates. Oklahoma would have been the 18th or at least one lawmaker has said they will file a bill in the next session to forbid that designation under state law.
0: So what's next for the health department's leadership? That's, that's an agency that's had quite a bit of leadership turmoil even before the pandemic hit, hasn't it?
2: That's right, Ted. Um, With Commissioner Fry's resignation, the governor appointed Keith Reed, a longtime agency employee and deputy commissioner, as interim health commissioner. Now, by my count, uh, Reed will be the state's seventh person to serve as either interim commissioner or permanent health commissioner in just the last of four years. Now, an interesting wrinkle to all of this is that Reed doesn't meet the statutory qualifications to be health commissioner, uh, a post that requires confirmation by the state senate. Reed has a a master's in nursing uh, and a master's in public health uh, and, you know, several decades of experience at the department, but not a medical degree or a doctorate in public health. Um, Now, this was also an issue that tripped up Gary Cox, who was Fry's predecessor. Um, And in fact, in that case, uh, the Senate refused to make any changes to state law for qualification and didn't give um, Gary Cox a hearing in the Senate for confirmation, leading to Fry's pick there. Uh, Now, there was a bill filed in this year's session that would have amended the health commissioner's qualifications uh, to include a master's in public health, made it through the house, died in the Senate. And it's too early to say, if there's any appetite for lawmakers to take that qualification issue up again in next year's session.
0: Got it. Well, thank you, Paul. And be sure to read all of Paul's state government coverage at OklahomaWatch.org. Rebecca Nahara covers race and equity issues for Oklahoma Watch and with her fellow Report for America Corps member, Lionel Ramos. In reporting a story on a new statewide initiative to address the crisis of missing indigenous women, Rebecca discovered limitations in the legislature's response to the problem that could damage it before it even begins. Rebecca, can you tell us what IDA's Law is and why it was created?
3: Sure. So Ida's law is named after a Native American woman named Ida Beard, who went missing in 2015. Um, this law is kind of years in the making. Um, the investigation in her disappearance appearance had a rough start and seemed to not go anywhere for a while. Um, there's actually a second detective on the case. Her cousin, Lorinda Morgan, had actually ran for a seat in the House of Representatives, but lost to Mickey Dolan's a few years ago. And at that time, Ida had already been missing for a year. So um, she was sharing her missing persons flyer on social media when Representative Dolans reached out to her, offered his condolences and whatever services he could be of. Uh, So the two pretty much teamed up to see what they could do on a legislative level uh, to make sure nothing like this happens again so they looked at what other states were doing uh, to figure out uh, what methods they could apply here in Oklahoma and two things they learned were that indigenous people more specifically women either go missing or are murdered at a disproportionate rate compared to other ethnic groups Um, yet there isn't an accurate account anywhere for just how many people are missing and then also navigating the different jurisdictional levels as far as state government and tribes go can make it difficult and confusing for loved ones trying to get answers for those missing people Um, so what this law does is it pretty much creates a one-stop shop for loved ones trying to find the people who go missing and it requires the osbi to secure federal funding to create an office of liaison and build a database to keep up with these missing indigenous people
0: and so where are we as far as that funding goes will this be fully funded when it goes into effect next week
3: so that's kind of where the um, issue is. Um, there isn't any funding right now, um, so it won't be funded when it goes into effect next week. A database hasn't been created, um, but the role of the liaison has been added to another agent's duties within the OSBI while they continue to look for money.
0: All right, what, what's caused the delay?
3: So I talked with some people at the OSBI, and it seems like they missed a deadline for the most recent federal grant cycle. Uh, I'm still doing a little reporting, so I haven't been given an exact reason as to why they missed that deadline But there's been some speculation that it's a timing issue Um, The law was signed in April and doesn't take effect until November 1st So I'm waiting to hear back to see when the cycle ended and when we can expect them to start applying again And this is all important because the bill requires funding to be secured by January 1st So the clock's kind of ticking there
0: Okay What have people been saying about this? Are are people worried by that lack of funds surrounding this bill? And it sounds like there's a deadline they have to meet as well, right?
3: Um, Honestly, the people I've talked to seem to be optimistic. Um, I talked with a couple citizens of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, uh, which are the tribes that Ida's enrolled in, um, to see how they were feeling, despite not any money being here yet. Um, And they seem pretty hopeful the law brought attention to the missing and murdered indigenous persons crisis here in Oklahoma. So I keep hearing things like this is a step in the right direction or the money will come. Um, so, of course, I'm going to check back into them whenever I find out um, about the delay in the um, federal grant cycle. So we'll keep stay posted there.
0: I know you're still doing some reporting on this, but uh, just briefly, do you have a sense of whether OSBI will have time to get an application in before that January deadline?
3: Um, So that's where I'm a little unsure and I'm wanting to check with them because federal grants, like, it's like a cycle, you know, Um, and they can only apply for ones that they qualify for. So they can't just apply to any grant. It takes time and research to figure out which ones they'll qualify for and which ones they actually have a chance of, you know, getting.
0: Great. Thank you for that. You can follow Rebecca's ongoing coverage of Rice and Equity at OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch. You can find those stories on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struli. Thanks for listening.